Welcome to The Strategic Marketer, where we talk about strategies, tactics, and practical steps to help you become a better marketer. I'm Joseph Lewin, and today's guest is Paul Hepperla. When Paul and I originally recorded this episode back in January, he was working for Emerson and I was still at Part Solutions, but he has since moved on to become the Vice President of Offer Management and Marketing in the digital office at Eaton, and I am working at Proofpoint Marketing. The focus of our conversation today is about having pervasive curiosity and how knowledge and really knowing uh, a lot and being an expert in your industry can actually become a curse and can blind you to what's going on in the industry and areas that you really need to pay attention to help your, your company grow instead of stagnating. Without further ado, let's dive into the conversation with Paul. So I know you have a, a background in doing a lot of research and, and product research, working with engineers and an engineering background, um, and especially in the engineering space and industrial space, I feel like people really pride themselves on what they know. Um, but can can knowledge become a curse? Absolutely. I think, you know, especially as you accelerate in your career, you gain more knowledge. And many times that will reinforce perhaps some of the thought processes that you've had previously. And so you start to question it less. And so I've talked about the curse of knowledge quite a bit because um, the more you learn and the more you know, the more it can become a burden because of, of a number of things. Me personally, one is uh, I, I lose some patience when I'm trying to explain a new concept, something that's new to somebody else that I've known for years. The ability to explain it easily uh, in common language with patience becomes a challenge. And the other big thing is that we make assumptions that because we know this and this and this about it, it can't be different. And so that, that knowledge, the more you gain, the more it can become a curse unless you're continuing to be open about how you think about things and ask the question and continue to ask, you know, the whys. There's a lot of studies out there that talk about children and as they're learning, uh, they're constantly curious. And as you get older, that curiosity wanes more and more and more. Mm. And I think part of that is because we assume we know. And when we assume we know, we lose the opportunity to be more creative uh, and frankly, think about things differently. So I think that's one of the challenges that, that we all have. And, and me with 28 years in a career is continue to ask some of those questions around why are things being done without just making the assumption that I already know why things are being done and it's either silly or stupid or it's a waste of time. Those all become opportunities for us to, to learn more and learn something different that we may not have been open to learning before. Yeah, that's excellent. And I, I think that's really important for people. I mean, at, at any point in your career to hear and, you know, especially people who are much have been in the, in, a, in the field much longer. I think they're going to have a tendency, like you're saying, to, to have the curse of knowledge even stronger. But people who are right in the middle, I think that this is a really good word for them to hear because maybe they are just getting to the point where they're getting enough knowledge to start to feel like they know what they're talking about. And that's a really great yeah. time to take a step back and stay curious. You know, maybe they've bit, they were curious when they first started. Now they're getting into a management role or, you know, a, a director level role and they're going, okay, I, I've proven myself. Now I'm the one who knows what I'm talking about, but maybe that's a great time to kind of take a step back and <laughs> continue being curious. It is. Yeah. And, and, you know, companies have a habit of beating it out of you. You know, they want efficiency over exploration. And, and so as we, as we think about that too, it's, are you in the type of environment that will encourage it or 
Are you in the type that really wants efficiency? Then you might have to find other outlets for that creativity and, and figure out how you position it back into being efficient. And so that, you know, that's one of those things where companies get caught in the trap of, and employees get caught in the trap of just doing what they're saying and doing what they're told rather than being allowed to explore the ideas. Is there a better way to do it? And and so therefore, I think we lose opportunities to one, learn and two, to take on that and create something new uh, because, you know, efficiency wins out every day uh, and productivity wins out every day. But exploration needs to continue to be part of the conversation. Yeah, there's two things that come to mind when you talk about the curse of knowledge being a curse. And one is uh, um, that what you already know was wrong to begin with, but you've assumed that it was right all the way along. You know, so I think that's one area for a pitfall. And another area for a pitfall is going to be that things have changed since you originally came to your conclusion. So maybe it was correct or right when you were the best way to do it when you came to the conclusion. But if that was, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, or with how technology is changing now, maybe six months ago, you know, things may have changed significantly. Yeah, exactly. Four months ago, 90 days ago. Yeah. <laughs> so which one of those do you, you know, feel, uh... you know, ends up being the stronger curse of knowledge and the more difficult thing to overcome? I think it is um, assuming that it's still correct. I, I think that becomes a, a big reason why, because again, we're being asked to, um, we're being asked to move forward and do the same things. And so therefore it's very easy. You know, it's very, very easy. It's very comfortable to rely upon the fact that we've already done it, solved it, Let's continue to move forward. Mm. And so, you know, it's human nature to rely upon what you know and, and go back to that uh, that that platform of what you've gained in that knowledge. And so it's really, really easy to do that. It, it, I don't fault anybody for doing that. But in the role of continuing to be curious, we've got to continue to learn. I mean, history is replete with examples of uh, folks assuming that everything is still the same, yet it's so different. And so I love to study history and I like to study history over a long, long, long period of time because you see many times the same situations with different results. So, you know, asking yourself and thinking about those things around, yes, it, it could have been perceived as the same situation with different results. So was it really the same? And uh, I think it was Ayn Rand in one of the, her books was uh, there are no contradictions wherever there's a contradiction question the assumption. And I think that's a, it's kind of a great statement because if there's a contradiction, so if you were seeing a similar situation you've seen in the past, but there's a contradictory aspect of it, we have to question our assumptions. And, hmm. and I think that's one of the, the, the big things that I tend to try to rely on is if there's a contradiction, I need to question my own assumptions about what's different, what's changed, uh, and, and keep asking why, well, what's happening, what's going on, what's happening, what's going on. Yeah, I mean, and one thing that is easy to do, like you're saying, once you once you've understood something or known something for a little while, um, it's easy to have confirmation bias. You know, be looking for the people who are gonna, and you know, promoting the voices that agree with the assumptions you've already come to or the conclusions you've come to, rather than encouraging maybe dissenting voices that disagree purely so that you are challenged on those ideas. But it's really hard to do that. I mean, it's really hard to bring people in who are going to challenge you on something and, and, uh, still maintain authority, still, you know, still maintain leadership, but then, 
Um, yeah, I, <laughs> that, that can be a challenge. Yeah, it, it, it is absolutely a challenge. And especially in, in our work environments, it can be a challenge to find the right sort of uh, environment that encourages curiosity. And they, they talk about personal interests. And years ago, I read a, a, it was a short paper in strategy and business, and it was 10 clues to opportunity. And it walked through a lot of the things that that we should be thinking about in terms of clues to opportunity. But it, it's kind of all the same thing, which is questioning things. You know, the customer experience doesn't have to be time consuming. It doesn't have to be arduous. It doesn't have to be evasive, but it is. Hmm. So we look at that and say, we might be quick to say, oh, that's just all about user experience. Well, let's let's talk about it. Let's question it. So it can fit into the normal day, your normal day of what you're doing. Find the right way to fit it into the culture that you're in. But you know, if if you've got a resource that you people are paying for and you don't know why, ask the questions. Keep asking the questions. And again, you know, I I talk a, a lot about acting like a four year old. And you get a four year old in their house or a young you know a young toddler in their house. What do they always do? They ask you why. And then you'll provide an answer and they say why, and then you provide an answer and they say why. And then you're usually at that point, you get three or four questions in and you're like, because God made it that way or because I said so. And, <laughs> right. uh, and you know, <laughs> as we get older, it's not, it's not probably four levels. It's probably two, like, just do what I say. You know, I have the experience. I have the knowledge. Just follow me. Um, and, and so I think we've got to find ways to just stop ourselves and, uh, and, and allow the conversation to happen. And, and if you don't know, uh, maybe it's worth exploration so that you can know, you know, why do customers do this? Why are people interested in this when they're not interested in mine? Go deeper, go deeper, mm. go deeper. Yeah. I love that. And the illustrations right on for where I'm at right now. Cause I have a, a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, <laughs> a five-month-old and the, three younger ones are all girls. So my, the, my son really asks the questions by just like not asking and trying things. And <laughs> he kind of figures it out, uh, by getting bruises and, <laughs> you know, uh, exactly. so he's, has the curiosity, but less in the asking questions, but man, especially my seven-year-old, she loves asking questions. And you know, they're the kind of questions that it, there's not really a easy answer to. And it really does stretch me to have to try to answer them. And I try as hard as I can not to just give her a pat answer. But sometimes I'm like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. It, you know, sometimes we have to go look it up or, you know, it kind of opens up a way for us to explore some kind of answer together. Um, but yeah, that, that that's a great visual. So what are some other ways that, um, that besides, you know, acting like a four-year-old and asking all the questions and going deeper, what are some other ways to stay curious? I think one is continue to read and continue to learn, you know, constant learning creates a different mindset. And, and I think many of us, let's go read the latest, greatest business book. Are we all interested in business? No. So let's take a look at what's going on in our daily lives and apply it to what we do. You know, if you're, you see the growth of Instacart over the COVID, you know, time frame. Think about what would happen, you know, what would happen if it was applied to my business? If you keep mm -hmm. asking that question about the things you experience in daily life, it might prompt some conversations or at least some thoughts around, gosh, if that were to happen here 
that would make a major disruption in our industry or uh, it might create a different opportunity. So, you know, one is just think about the things you do in everyday life and try to apply it to what's happening in your business world and say, how would that change and how would that be different? The other thing I really encourage is continue to read. And for me, I love history. I like uh, historical fiction. Um, but I'm trying to get outside of those to say, all right, I'm going to go read about healthcare. I mean, we, we serve some healthcare, but not really. And I want to learn about the patient's ex- patient experience. And when I look through that and I look through how they think about decision support, how a physician goes through their clinical analysis and comes through that, I look at that and I, you know, naturally for me, uh, it's easier for me than it is for others. But I, I say, well, what are we doing that might be similar? What are we is it an opportunity? So I continue to read. And and um, as of others have said about me, I'm a massive consumer of information. And uh, But I try to do it from really, really a broad spectrum. So I'm not just looking at my industry and, and what I'm focused on, but trying to do it broadly. And then I'm also trying to extend it beyond a short window, which might be a one-year, two-year window, and look at it over a 10 or 15-year game. And as part of that, I, I constantly question what would put us out of business? And I think that's a great question to ask anybody in any in any business market. What would be the reason why we would no longer be in business? Is it a new technology? Is it a new way of consumers doing something? Is it is it a disruption or does the need go away? And I think all those can prompt different ideas. And, and so I think that's a big part of it is just, and I think we forget about it. We do so many things in the normal course of our lives that we don't think about what it does for us or why we get so excited and and how do we take that and, and see if there's a way to stitch a connection between those two things. You know, Wordle, everybody's talking about Wordle. And so what is it? It's a, it's a really simple game. Yeah. You get six guesses to guess, you know, to guess. A, is there a way to leverage that into what I do? I have no idea, but I think it's worth at least asking the question and you might get, Two minutes into it and dismiss it out of hand. Great. Move on to the next one and the next one and the next one. But if we don't, if we're not thinking that way, it, and again, it's easy for me to say, but encourage others to think that way. Like this just became super popular or this company just became a unicorn. What are they doing and why is it interesting? And how can I relate it back to my business? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because on the podcast, as we're recording this, so it's going to be quite a while ago by the time this actually releases, but just released an episode with a guy named Kurt Anderson, and he's an e-commerce for manufacturing guy. And, um, you know, he's really pushing companies to question their assumptions about what could sell through e-commerce without a salesperson at all. And he's talking about how there's companies that he's worked with and that are selling six and sometimes seven figure products online. And, you know, without going through the whole traditional sales process. And that right there is destroying tons of assumptions about what people would purchase without talking to a salesperson. And, you know, we make all of these, these, uh, we have all of these ideas in the B2B market about, you know, if it's an enterprise sale or it's, you know, this or that, then you have to have a long sales cycle or you have to have all these people involved or they would never run that on a credit card. But then when we question those assumptions and we say, well, is that actually true? You know, what if we right. could figure out a way to sell our products through e-commerce? You know, would that what would that do for our business? How would that change the business model? Would that add more value to the 
to the end user? You know, is that going to be something that's going to benefit them if they don't have to spend a lot of time talking to our sales team before they could make a purchasing decision? You know, whatever those things are, maybe just setting aside the impossibility of something for a second and saying, well, what if this could happen? And then start to say, well, how can we make that happen then? And if you start questioning those assumptions like that, you can really disrupt the industry and, and do things in a totally different way. Um, it, yep, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so if you look at that, I mean, there's the, the, the growth of sales bots and, and I'm a, I'm a, I've been in sales a, a big part of my career in different roles as a salesperson in a pre-sales role. So that, you know, the subject matter expert coming in to build the credibility with the customer. And, and I, I remember going through training and they said, what do you think your purpose is in this role of pre-sales? And I'm like, well, you got to demo and you got to do this. And really what it boiled down to is building more credibility with the customer. And when you build credibility, what the product is, isn't as important as do they believe you or not. And we have so many of those opportunities, whether it's the whole idea of balancing um, inside sales or demand generation versus sales versus enterprise sales. Well, you got to look at who the parts and pieces are involved and amazing statistics just about social selling and how many people will already have an idea of what they want to buy just by researching connecting with people on LinkedIn or other social media aspects, doing their own research, where before they always relied upon the company as the, as the entity to provide you all the details and all the information. And just like all of us, if I'm going to go buy something off Amazon or anywhere else, I usually go to Amazon to look at the reviews because I want to see what they're saying. And it helps me, help, helps me make my decisions. So there's so many things changing. And in the e-commerce world, the whole idea of, of, payment and the way we in businesses think about traditional payment it's it's credit card po invoice whatever else it might be depending upon what business you're in let's take a look at crypto and say am i saying you're going to pay with bitcoin i think that's the easy path the question is why is crypto becoming more popular and what's the enabling technology that's making it different and that's a harder thing to figure out you've got to spend a little bit more time researching it Absolutely. And looking at, you know, NFTs, you know, the metaverse. Why, why, do, why did somebody just sell a home in the metaverse for $469,000 in real money? And we, you know, I, the first thing I do is shake my head. And then I, <laughs> or why like, would somebody buy really a for Exactly. In the metaverse. <laughs> what's the tangible value there? Right. And, and is there one? And I think that also helps us see which trends are going to enable and stay on. And which ones might be a flash in the pan that drop off? Yeah. And so TikTok, another great example. Um, I'm meeting more and more business professionals that are using TikTok to create uh, content and demand. And because so many people are used to the 30 second and no more than one minute video that provides some tangible information, it's creating lead generation, marketing opportunities and everything else. And so I think we've got to look at those experiences. And if you don't know what to look at, go ask your Go ask your niece, your nephew, your son, your daughter, who's 12 or 13, and say, what are the hottest things that, that your friends are interested in right now? And I think you'll have a really good idea of where the trends might be going. Yeah, I mean, and talking about staying curious and being at a point in your career where it's important to stay curious, I find myself now kind of frustrated or poo-pooing certain ideas that are just different than what I'm used to. And I mean, I'm 30, yeah. uh, 31, I guess, and... um I guess I'm at the age where I don't pay as much attention to how old I am, so it takes me a second, but I'm 31, and 
so yeah, I mean, there's certain technology or certain ways that people are communicating that really annoy me and bother me. And I think it's, you know, less efficient or whatever. Um, or, you know, there's, uh, there's things that Gen Z is doing on purpose and the way they communicate to be able to quickly tell when somebody isn't using communication the way they do. So purposefully changing the way that emojis are perceived so that they can say that, you know, you're being passive aggressive. If you're older and you're sending, you know, a smiling emoji, then it means something totally different than what makes sense. But the, and they're doing it on yeah. purpose so they can have, you know, a group kind of, uh, the inside group and the outside group. Yeah, can you imagine? Um, and that gets to be frustrating yeah, a little bit, was, but <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Can you imagine receiving an email at work with nothing but emojis, like a whole series of emojis? Um, I, I I'd be like, that's a interesting thing, but again, we're, we're all quick to send memes. Um, you know, so is it a generational thing? I, obviously you communicate visually now much better and much, I wouldn't say, I don't know if I would say better, but it's more commonly accepted to communicate visually video emojis, memes, pictures, whatever else it might be, then with written word and, and then with written word also with face-to-face -face communication. And so, you know, it's not, it doesn't mean that it's the only way to do things. Uh, I, I look at calendar, uh, calendly, uh, calendly invites, you know, I'll get a request from somebody and, and they provide me the calendar, you know, Hey, choose a time on my calendar. Here's what it is. And, and I understand it, but is it something that fosters a closer link or communication? Because if you're trying to reach out to me and you're providing me a calendar link, it's contradictory, you know, the way I think. But it's worth questioning and saying, why are people using this? Is this something that I think is going to be around in five years? Is it not? And uh, I, I, obviously, history has numerous examples. Um, the internet's going to be a fad by the CEO right. of IBM. <laughs> I mean, so many of those different things yeah. that, that you say, well, if they were curious, would they have dove in further and maybe understood the opportunity and the need and then taken that and been in a different position. And that's what I think we have to do, especially in the role of marketing, which is why are consumers buying the things they're buying? You know, why, why is it, why is it so popular? Is Chick-fil-A's sandwich that much better than any others? Or is there something else different there about the experience or how you feel and how you're treated that are creating the need and the difference? Right. You've got to ask those questions because if you just make the assumption, so many people are in line, it must be better food. Maybe, maybe not. Well, and yeah, the food tastes better when your experience is better. Even if you got that same sandwich somewhere else, you might not enjoy it as much because right. we tie we tie the emotions that we're experiencing to the way that things taste and the way that we perceive it. So, you know, I know that there's been some interesting, um, I, I think that it was Seth Godin that wrote about this in his book, but it was about one of his books. I mean, he's got so many, I don't remember which one it was. I've read quite a few of his books, but he talks about, you know, this glass of the special glass for drinking wine and every, all of these like top sommeliers and stuff, swore about how awesome this glass was and how the glass, uh, how the wine tastes different when you drink out of the glass. And then, um, they did blind taste tests and nobody could tell a difference when they couldn't see it, but it was <laughs> the experience around it and the hype around it and the emotional experience that people had that was tied to it that made the, the experience it it's from all marketers are, are liars. And the idea is, you know, he, he's saying that all marketers are storytellers and you could call that a lie because they're saying it makes the experience better. But the fact that people, had a better experience when they drink out of it means that 
the experience was better. And so even if the glass itself doesn't actually change to the way that the wine tastes physically, the experience is elevated because people thought that it would be elevated. And it's kind of interesting, you know, talking through the, uh, through that. And how can we do that in the B2B space? You know, how can we add value to what we're doing by changing the experience and making, you know, if it's, if you sell commodity components, for instance, sometimes there can't be any difference. So then how can we elevate the emotional experience that somebody has or the, you know, the ease of being able to use it or, you know, getting clarity around the product and how it's going to benefit them? How can we incorporate those emotional things that elevate the value of the product, even if the physical product is exactly the same as our competitors? Right. And if you look at a SWOT analysis or Porter's Five Forces, they don't address the emotional aspects of that. And, you know, it's something that I look at and, and talk with our customers. Why do our customers buy this from us? And you'll hear all the features and benefits. You won't hear any of the emotional reasons why. And I think that is a key opportunity for us to do discovery and continue to be curious, which is you've been a loyal customer for 20 years. Why do you buy this from us? You'd be amazed at the answers you get because many times it's not, oh, this stuff never breaks or, or you know, um, your price is right. It's about the fact that you made their lives easier or they use it for a purpose that, that they, you didn't intend. I mean, that's, a, that's one of those great clues. I had a, a product manager in the past that uh, we had a report that we were generating for our customers and she was so frustrated. And I said, what are you frustrated about? And she said, well, we generate this great report and they don't use it for the purpose it was intended. I said, oh, what do they use it for? And they said, well, we use it, they, they use it to determine which piece of equipment's not working well. I said, okay, let's, isn't that an opportunity? And she would, she was really, really stuck on, no, we intended it for this. And so think about all those examples in your daily life where you're using something that wasn't necessarily intended for it, but now it's, it's the exact reason why you bought it, why you use it all the time. Um, you know, I think that's, you look at something like an air fryer and people are buying air fryers. Why? I mean, and now they become reliant on it. So I, I tend to look at those things. I just, I question everything and I try to question it a lot. Um, not because I'm trying to be a contrarian, but I'm also trying to understand what's the compelling reason. Yeah. And uh, uh, we're already pretty far in, into our time and have lots more questions to go. Um, and I think what you're talking about really ties in to the next question. Uh, and I, I love what you're talking about there about looking for things outside of your direct either industry or your your direct field that you're working in. So, you know, we're in marketer, we're marketers, but usually we're going to be marketers within an industry that's other than marketing to marketers. So, you know, you have to learn about the industry. Exactly. But then when you can look at those things across the board, like you're saying, looking for human behavior, looking for some of those underlying principles, you really can figure stuff out. So my career path to get to where I am right now is pretty different than most marketers. Like I don't have a college degree. And I didn't grow, I, I didn't work in the corporate world and then transition over into marketing. Um, I was, you know, five years ago, so, well, I guess seven years ago. Now it's, I was sweeping chimneys for my job <laughs> and I've kind of made this transition uh, through the back door by starting a business and starting to do marketing things on the side and then gaining the skill and kind of moving that way. And I think it's given me a really unique perspective because I I've done a lot of different jobs that most marketers haven't. And it's kind of given, I, I do pull from 
all kinds of different areas that I like learning about and pull those ideas in to whatever I'm doing in marketing, just like you're saying. And I think it really makes a big difference. And so even like pursuing a hobby or, you know, going off the trail, like you're saying, and reading a different type of book than you normally would, that's not directly related, you're going to start to learn things that, um, that are really valuable. But that kind of pulls us into what you were talking about with staying curious and, and questioning everything. Um, I'm going to ask the question how we wrote it down, but then I'm going to kind of put a little twist on it for you. So how can you create an environment of, of curiosity within your organization? But I think one other thing on that is how do you encourage people and build an environment where people can ask those questions and question everything, but still get things done and still have people kind of respect the the decisions that end up being made and, and get buy-in behind right. them. And so, yeah, I mean, and both are really important. So one, you've got to model it. You've got to model it yourself. Um, and you've got to model that inquisitive aspect of it. But we also have to respect the time bound aspects of what we're trying to do. So modeling, model being inquisitive. Are you learn? Are you listening and learning and asking questions? Or are you just providing answers? I'm one that has been in the role of providing answers and I've had to slow down. And even if I knew the answer, ask the question. And I think that's part of that modeling inquisitive. And when you do that, you start to see the conversation open up a little bit more. But you might have to dedicate certain pieces of time, whether it's a day for the why, what if, how uh, sort of questions. That becomes your focus in a, a period of time. So you can be focused on execution on one hand, but create that opportunity for that. And then in other businesses that I've been in, it's just been the normal course of how we've done things. So uh we used to call it a ferocious debate amongst friends. It was just the way we made the decision-making process. We'd get in. And so in, in the current world, we'll, we'll red team it. This is what we're going to propose to the customer. This is why we think it's great. All those other aspects. And then we red team it, which essentially means what are the reasons it's not going to work? What are the reasons the customer's not going to buy it? And you can do that in a time-bound dialogue that creates some, you know, creates some opportunity. But I think you also have to do some other things. You've got to hire for it. Um, one of the number one things that I look at when I'm hiring somebody new is how curious are they? And I don't, I don't care what the role is. I want to encourage curiosity, which means many times my team might be the island of misfit toys. Nobody knows how they work together or what they do. And gosh, they're all different personalities. They're not all cut out of the same cloth. That's great. Um, that means that hopefully we've got an environment where they're all feeling like they're contributing and being part of it. Yeah. But at the same time, we're creating some curiosity. And uh, I, I, so those are some tangible things that you have to do, which is you've got to model it yourself. I, if I'm going to go model curiosity, I can't just be providing the answers. And in, you're talking about your child before. One of the great things is to say, well, why do you think it's that way? The sky, why is the sky blue? Why do you think it's that way? And you get into a different conversation. So we've got to encourage ourselves and, and to, to ask the question, why, why do you think it's happening? And you're going to hear an answer. And then you might not hear any answer because they don't know. That becomes a great execution exercise to say, just take an hour, go find out what you think is happening. Um, go talk with customers, go do your own research. There's multiple research. Go figure out why they're doing that. And then come back and let's talk about that as part of our execution strategy. 
So it doesn't have to be this, um, you know, blue ocean strategy where we're going to dedicate a time and we're going to have played on our hands and we're going to think about all the things that are different in the world. You can incorporate little parts and pieces in the normal course of doing business just by your perspective and how you're communicating. Yeah. Well, I think that's great. And it, and it really is, you're going to be disrupted in your business. So it's either going to be you disrupting it or somebody else. And if you aren't hiring for curiosity and you're not doing the things you're talking about where you're actively looking for who's going to take out our business in, in 10 years. And I don't want to go too far down this tangent because, again, I, I, we have a couple more things I want to cover and um, don't want to run sure. out of time. But one thing that I was listening to this week was um, somebody breaking down crypto and Bitcoin and NFTs and all that just in, in a little bit more simple terms. And it's still really confusing to me and I don't like investing a ton <laughs> into things I don't understand. So I'm trying to understand it better because I don't think those I don't think the underlying technology is going anywhere, whether like you're saying it's Bitcoin or something else. Cryptocurrency is, isn't going anywhere in the long run. Um, and, and it poses a real problem for the banking industry because they've just gone through this massive digital transformation and they're considered one of the most digitally transformed uh, industries is banking. So it's like 95% right. or something of banks have gone through their digital transformation. And now most of their processes are digital, but they're now on the cusp of having a total transformation of business model with cryptocurrencies and, and, and blockchain and all of this stuff that's going to disrupt. And so, you know, this guy was basically saying the banks have an opportunity to completely gut their own business and take a loss for the next five years and then be the bank of the future, or they're not going to be in business in five to 10 years from now, because the underlying technology and the way banking is done is going to be completely different based on this new technology that's far superior but how many banks are really going to choose to destroy their current business model and totally gut everything that they've done over the last 15 years to have a digital transformation to buy in, into what's going to happen in the future. And most of the time, instead of doing that, they're fighting to get regulation and things in place to make the, you know, to keep that technology from coming out rather than embracing it and being <laughs> exactly. the ones to, to disrupt, which is pretty interesting. It, and that's what, that's what businesses do all the time. Uh, we have a new disruptive force in our business. Well, there's two ways to beat it. One is to out-innovate, which especially as you get to be in a bigger and bigger, bigger company, is harder to do. So what's the other path? You acquire or you try to get regulations that limit their ability to disrupt you. Uh, I don't necessarily agree it's the right approach, but it is what happens in the normal course of business. And it is, I think it's those folks that are willing to lead on change that look at it and say, is this something that we should be looking at? How would we use this? What will happen to it? Do we need to pivot? And pivots aren't disrupting what's happening in the current year. It might be, we're, yeah, we're going to start to pivot because we want to be ready in three years or five years. And so, and I don't know, some banks are starting to make that pivot. I mean, Capital One tried this years ago with their their banking approach, and I resonated with some of that because if I go into a bank, it's because I lost my debit card or I'm doing a transaction that I can't do on my app. And, right. you know, uh, other people in my home like to, you know, I, I don't trust that. I want to go to the bank. So there's generational aspects that made up that. But what is that bank experience like? You go stand in a line, you wait for somebody across the glass uh, Wells Fargo has tried to transform that where you're sitting down now in a comfortable chair. And so the question becomes, that's great. I appreciate that. 
but I meant to be in and out of here in two minutes. <laughs> right. So I don't want to <laughs> sit down with you and talk about a portfolio review and all the other things. So I think there has to be a balance in all that, but yeah. we have to be looking at all these disruptions and saying, what's, what, what could it potentially do to my business? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So to kind of speaking of pivoting, um, but yeah. one of the other things we, we, we talked about that you mentioned in our pre-conversation was the value of writing things down and, you know, kind of writing down your knowledge and, and getting that out on, on paper. So what value does that play in fostering pervasive curiosity? So I, um, for me, what I find is that, and we're a PowerPoint reliant world, uh, put it on PowerPoint. That's how, that's how many companies communicate, including my own. When you start to try to take that and put it down on a piece of paper with written word, you're forced to really think about how do I communicate this in a way that somebody can read it and make sense of it. Mm. And I think that's a much harder challenge today, you know, given the tools that we have, but also given the generational aspects, when I have to sit down and write down what my idea is, it can become a longly worded run on sentence that never ends. And so when you read that and then you read it back to yourself, it's like, gosh, this didn't communicate at all what I wanted it to communicate. Mm. So I think writing down things, it, certainly for me, allows other people to read it and consume it in a different way rather than just PowerPoint with your five bullets and a couple pictures and cool. Um, I used to, my, uh, my marketer used to call it my manifesto. So when I was traveling internationally or whatever else, I'd sit down and just start jotting notes and things and how they might connect or not connect. Some were harebrained, some of them were tangible, and some were somewhere in between. And I would just send that off to him. And what he did is he would read through that, and we'd sit down, and then he'd ask me about a, a bunch of questions around what am I thinking, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. And that helped me refine and helped him, helped us refine what our market approach might be. Yeah. Um, how do we turn this into content? What's what were the key triggers that he saw from it that he thinks are worth communicating more? And we, I've had the experience where Amazon talks about their six pager. And so what Amazon does is in, in part of their business process. If you're presenting a new idea or a new market or a new new something new to go get those those people in that business have to write a six pager. And there's certain aspects that are in that six page. And they bring it into a meeting. And for the first 20 minutes of that meeting, nobody says a word, presents anything. They're all reading through that six-pager. And then question time begins. And for the remainder of that meeting, typically one hour, they'll go through all the questions. By the end of that one-hour meeting, they're making a go-no-go no, go decision. And I think about that in our wow. environment. And I've taken some of our product teams and said, can you write a six-pager? took them two and a half months to be able to get to the point where they could write six pages of explaining what it is they're trying to do from the perspective of, I want to try this. And at the end of that meeting, we're going to make a go, no, go decision. So it, it's so foreign that I think it forces you to, to think differently. Yeah. And I, I love that. I, I think that's a really, really interesting way to approach it. Yeah. I absolutely love that. And since I've been in, in, uh, now I'm running my own business in the marketing world and starting at, uh, when I started at Canina's Part Solutions, I I was having to write out an idea and then create a presentation around it. And there were specifically these products that we already had that 
were a little bit confusing and we were working with a sales team that had way less knowledge about what we're talking about than anybody on our team. And our team was already kind of confused about the product itself. So I had to go in and figure out, okay, what is this product and what does it actually do? And then I had to write basically these summaries for each different use case for these tools. And then I had to create videos for these people to consume. And I had to create slide decks for them to use to present it. And I basically had to take something that was complicated and simplify it down into four or five different formats. And we even wrote a basic sales script, a basic calling script. I mean, you kind of hit it from all the different angles of what this other sales team would need to use. And I didn't have any interaction with that other sales team besides to give an overall presentation to them. So not only did we make a presentation about the product, but I made a presentation then for the sales team to explain to them, you know, how they're going to use these materials and everything. And going through that, that exercise was extremely helpful. And I think it's made me a, a better communicator and, and able to present my ideas better. And I've had to do something similar to that and for multiple different products and, and different things that we've launched. And I totally agree. Getting those ideas out and writing them, interviewing other people on your team and getting their understanding and writing those things out and then pulling it together and then simplifying it from, you know, something long and arduous to something simple and, and, and you know, clear and then having all that other information to back it up. There's there really is a ton of value in, in going through that process. Yeah, and I, I tend to I've used mind maps for a long time in my career, just trying to jot my own random thoughts out. And it's great, but turning that mind map then into communication that's written format that I plan to hand off to somebody to read and say, can you read this and make sense of it, is a really big challenge because you have to think about who's your audience, what do they understand or know about the marketplace, how do I communicate it to simple. So the exact same process you've gone through, I think, is something that we all struggle with every day. and. I'm not one, so personal, you know, personal aspect. I'm not one to just sit down with a blank PowerPoint and start writing slides. I need to think about it. I need to think about how the connections, who the audience is, what's the big three things I want to communicate. If I can write it down, it's much easier for me to turn it into that PowerPoint. Absolutely. And, and so just like just like I learned when we were little, you know, you're gonna write an essay paper, you gotta write your draft, you refine your draft, you you know, you write your final one. And and I think we've lost some of that process in our normal course of doing things because we're so focused on trying to push our message out and communicate it to get buy-in rather than maybe spending a little bit more time about what's the bigger story here and how do they how do they stitch it together yeah i love that yeah so to cap off i always like asking you know what are some practical steps to fostering more creativity i know we've kind of covered a lot but if you could if you could just leave people with one or two things that they could start doing tomorrow what would that be the, the biggest things for me are continue to learn, especially from industries that you're not necessarily comfortable with Two, write down all your harebrained ideas and see if they have relevance in how you normal course of business. And three is just look around at what you use and what your family uses and what your friends use every day and look at it to say, is it something that could be beneficial or disruptive to my business? Those are just three simple things. Um, start thinking about it. Yeah. Oh, I love that. All right. So Paul, what are, what are some ways that people can find out more about you and, and stay up to date with what you're doing? I'm on LinkedIn at uh, Paul Hepperla. Uh, so you can find my name. It's H E P P E R L A. 
Uh, and otherwise, my email is paul at hepperlaw.com. Uh, happy to talk with anybody. I, I like the idea of marketing and I like like even more so learning about people and, and what what's keeping them ticking and what ideas do they have. Uh, so happy to help. Yeah, I mean, and just a shout out to you, Paul. This is our, I guess, probably like fourth conversation, but second recorded conversation. And, you know, it's a, I've also recorded somebody that uh, an interview with somebody that reported directly to you um, or, you know, at least worked with you. And so, I mean, uh, if if you're out there and you want to learn more about marketing and especially in the industrial space, take Paul up on it and shoot him an email or connect on LinkedIn and reach out because he really is, a, you really are just super smart. And I, lo- oh, I really thanks. appreciate your approach because there's a lot of things in the industrial world that people just get stuck on and, and stay stuck on. I think the fact that you're willing to ask those questions being as far along in your career as you are is a huge testament to your humility and and how smart you actually are to recognize that you know there's areas where you're, where you're blind. So if there's anybody out there that wants to grow in those areas, I highly recommend reaching out to Paul. Well, thank you for the kind words. I'm uh, I'm not that smart. That's why I read so much. Um, uh, you know, I I I, uh, I like the experience. I like meeting people, and I like helping people. And uh, and so, especially with things they're stuck on, and or making a connection where they they may not have seen one before. So. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Paul. Really appreciate it, and I look forward to talking to you again at some point. Thanks, Joseph. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to The Strategic Marketer wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could do me a personal favor and hit five stars on the rating, you don't have to leave a full review, just hit five stars. It would really help me out. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of The Strategic Marketer.